Well, it's been a while since I have uh, given my uh, some thoughts on Cote in Europe. I remember I was thinking about this earlier this week, and I remember when I first moved over here, I would talk about things, and uh, and you would summarize it pretty well. You'd be like, "What I'm hearing is that you don't like it there," <laughs> <laughs> which you know I was probably complaining about food and you know lack of of free refills and ketchup and things like that, but. You know, it is, it is, uh, obviously, I like it here, because I've spent a lot of time to stay here longer, and my family especially likes it. But I had a few things on, in my notebook I wanted to empty here at the start. One, uh, you know, let's talk about one of the great pleasures of, of everyday life in Europe. Is it fresh baked bread? Is it the cheery disposition of the, uh, the Dutch people? Is it the constant fantastic weather that we have here the ability to go to any museum or any cultural event fantastic wine the, the wine is pretty good uh no it's contactless payments there's there are a few things more pleasurable more sort of magical when you you leave the house and you're like oh i'm gonna go grocery shopping uh but i totally forgot my wallet and you're listening to your podcast or your audible book and you're like oh i have my phone no problem because you can pay for everything here with your phone. There's only one time I have bought, well, not, I mean, only one time in memory where I bought something that I couldn't pay with my phone. I couldn't use contact pay, pay, payments. And that was when I was at the uh, the Dapper Market a while ago. And there was this, this ancient Vietnamese dude with a tiny van selling Vietnamese food. And he only took cash, which, you know, I can, I can, that's fine. He also, I didn't listen closely enough to what he said, and he sold me some frozen dumplings, Ooh. which I wish I would have known because I would have got, I mean, you know, it's fine if you're planning ahead, but then I had to go warm them up and that doesn't work well. And it's just like, it was a bad experience, but it also wasn't very good. I don't know. Maybe I'm spoiled on Austin uh, Vietnamese food. It could be one of those things where like, you know how like, uh, you know, no no offense or whatever, but like you grow up eating American Chinese food and you might eat actual Chinese food and you're like, what is this? Yeah. It's totally and different. It, it's not, yeah, yeah. It's not even close. Right. Yeah. So who knows if that's how Vietnamese food is. I'm used to America. I'm used to Kim Fung basically. And, uh, that's, that's, that's about it. <laughs> the American, Americanized Vietnamese food. That's, that uh -huh. would be more interesting. Is like, is there like, which is more authentic? Uh, I assume, uh, where you are would be likely to be yeah. more authentic but i don't know maybe not i mean yeah, it, yeah it's interesting interesting vietnamese food is not as popular here in uh, amsterdam as it is at least in austin anyhow so the the only hitch that people that you'll encounter is that people don't really accept credit cards as much as you would one would like around here now usually when you go to a larger store you know you go to a hema or an h&m or, or whatever like they'll accept credit cards uh, or the little coffee shop. I mean, not coffee shop, the coffee store. Let me be very. The place very, where you uh, actually buy the beverage. <laughs> yes. Coffee, the coffee. Or beans to make the beverage. Got it. <laughs> yes. And, and various accessories. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, uh, you know, they'll accept a credit card, but even, even mighty, mighty Albert Hein, king of the grocery stores does, does not generally accept credit cards, except as far as I found the Albert Hein and Schiphol, which they were probably forced to with all the travelers there. And finally they were like, all right, all right, we'll, we'll pay MasterCard one and a half or 2% of all these euros, just because all these dunderheads in Schiphol who want to buy groceries or whatever, who, who aren't, you know, uh, from the Netherlands. So they, uh, you'll see these, they have the, these maestro, uh, 
little logos on things, which means you can only pay with debit cards. I, I don't I don't even oh, know if they call they okay they call them they call them pin cards here because you enter a pin. We would call them debit cards, right? Okay. And I remember when I moved over here, I forget if I went over this, but you know, I signed up with A B and AMRO just because they had a branch in Skipple. That's Why the not? only reason. Okay. Yeah. So, so I just got off the plane right away and got myself a bank account. And then there, there. But is go. this that it sounds like um because there's a, a long thread this week in the software defined talk that People like this, but it sounds like, is it Maestro? Is it only available in uh, the Netherlands? Like, this is not something that no, you're going to no, use, no, like, in Germany or something. That's all. No, you use it all across Europe. Okay, right? so it's like, all like across it's, Europe. It's every, everywhere. But, yep. but I was going to say, like, I mean, I've, I've used, you know, uh, many times I've been in Europe. It's, all, it's very mostly been uh, for some type of business function. So, therefore, I'm always trying to use the American Express corporate card mm. to pay for many Good of luck my with things. That. Uh, but no, but I'm trying to think. I've used definitely used it. I've, I've like at the hotels. I've given them my. I don't know. Like, has it changed recently? Like, I I know I've used the American Express corporate card all over Europe in many cases. Is has something? Yeah. Different well, now, you, or what's going you know, on? I I think you know if you go to places that cater to to travelers and especially like you know higher more expensive places, there's a higher chance that they'll accept credit cards. And there's a chance they'll accept American Express, like just American Express. I mean, at hotels, they accept it and right. maybe at major chains and things like that. But it's just like, that's never dependable. It's like, in fact, the, one of the most laughable things I ever encounter is like the, the, um, the official KLM credit card is an American Express card, which is like the most useless credit card in the Netherlands. Right. And so like, I don't, and they also, it's like the old days of a platinum Amex. They also charge 600 euros a year for the top oh, tier. Oh, okay. And wow. And like it gets you, I don't remember if it gets you Lounge X. Well, it gets you a ton of their XP points, which are like uh, advantage points. So you're sort of guaranteed to be at gold level. I, I forget, but like it does get you if you care about it a big benefit, but like, it's an Amex. Like it's impossible to use. You could maybe you could buy stuff at bowl, like at online and things like that, but day to day. So anyways, it is like, so contactless payment with debit cards is, uh, I mean, that's the deal. And you can use that all across. All right, well, now, give the us only- a tip then. Like, how does, okay. So as an American or someone that's coming uh-huh. in from outside, and this seemed to yeah, be the yeah. conversation that was kind of ongoing was like, okay, great. It's great that it's contactless for everyone. And uh, I want to participate in the contactless re- revolution. I, yes. uh, as American, I have, I'm going to show up with uh, typical credit cards of Costco, the Costco city bank. Of course, I'm going to have that. Absolutely. Um, yes. And uh, I'll have some debit cards that frankly, I, I never actually use for anything other than actually yeah, yeah, getting yeah. money from an ATM. So like what, like, how do I, how do I get a maestro card if I'm just traveling abroad? I'm, I'm not going to be able to open a bank account. I won't have any of that information oh, for no. European. So- what do I do? So I think, well, first of all, uh, you know, you got to load it up on Apple Pay, right? And mm-hmm. and just make sure to do that when you're but ready. I can do for Apple Pay cr- with my credit card, can I? Uh, yeah, yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it will work. It'll still work. Well, if if they accept credit cards. Oh work. no, no, I was to say, but I have to. So, have my- so hold on, hold on. Right. Hold, I'm just saying, you got to load everything up on Apple. Get it? Pay. Okay, yeah, everything I'm, I'm going to Apple Pay. Got it. Check and it. and then mm-hmm. and then if you haven't ever done that before, it's very important that you get ready for your credit card to be shut down when you do it. Right. Like, like, cause this, every, uh-huh. every single time Kim messes with anything, having to do credit cards, often when she's paying, it just like shits the bed. 
Okay. Right. Like good to know. So, all right. Good so like you find yourself a week where nothing's going on or just, you know, a day and try to add your cards to, to your thing and know who to call when it doesn't work. If okay. it doesn't work, check. Got it it. Kind of, and every, I have about an 80% success rate with doing it. Now, the next thing is, and I have to be honest, I haven't actually tested this, but it should work is maestro and debit card are the same thing as far as I know. So if you get, if you get a debit card, you can just add that and then that should work in Europe. Okay. So think just an American banking debit card, you think it will work? I, I could, I could be totally wrong. Right. Because first time ever. Because the problem might be that you need like an IBAN type of number. I think I almost think out. for sure this I, yeah, IBAN. Yeah. Whenever you get IBAN and America involved, there's, it doesn't. Yeah, mix. it doesn't no, mix together. I, I mean, I mean, in that case, you're just like the only. I mean, man, if you really wanted to do it, so what I would do, you know, first it's all about transaction fees, right? And the debit card that I know uh, that doesn't have a transaction fee is the Schwab debit card which Schwab is notorious for being hard to open an account with because they're protective about money laundering. Like I have, uh, I have uh, all my money at a Schwab brokerage account and they mm-hmm. won't give me an American checking account. Right. And it's just like, I don't how much money do I need to give you? Just, <laughs> but it's just because I'm not an American resident. Uh-huh. Um, an American and so, resident or what do you mean? Or, or Netherlands? Well, you, but, no, no, you have to, you, you have to have your residency in America. Oh, right? okay. Got it. Got for, it. All right. I oh, mean, so you I mean, you're not physically actually there. I get it. That's now. right. All that's right. right. Mm-hmm. My official residency. And it's sort of like, I don't know, I could use my mom's address, but like. No, no, you I don't. don't you don't feel bad. like you would need to, you know, you yeah. don't want to mess it up to know your customer, the KYC requirements. You don't want to yeah, mess so that up. I, I always assumed that that would work. Um, but I guess if it doesn't and you really wanted to get like uh, you uh, get set up, you would need to get a European bank account, which I was able to do with. Uh, with these new fin services so i got mm. a bank account with bunk b-u-n-k i think and also in 25 so there's a couple of online banking and you can kind of apply in a day or two and then you're gonna have to set up transfer wise to move cash over there okay so it's just Oof, i mean if you can't if you can't use a U.S. debit card, it doesn't really work. Well, now, what about uh, what about something maybe you know, kind of hack I like to use is like you know, sometimes you like use like quote unquote gift cards or re- reloadable cards for different situations. Yeah. Could I buy like a re- uh, either a reloadable or just a uh, a maestro yeah, uh, debit card kind of thing? You know, like prepaid and just use that, that would be that would be smart. But I have no idea. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's there's all those things that you think about with like international banking that from a software standpoint sound really straightforward and just like, it you know, work. a, couple, yeah. a no. couple of lines of JavaScript or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it's always like, oh, because money laundering. And you're just like, uh, that's a dumbass answer. How about because like, I want to spend money, right? And it's just like, you know, I don't know. Like, what one has to wonder, like who, if there's been some sort of, you know, John Stuart Mill utilitarian calculus of like money laundering versus like can't pay for shit, right? Like, like what what is the greater evil, uh, you know, versus the greater good of things that we should uh, base our banking society on? I think that's, uh, I don't know, annoying. Now, now I wanted I wanted to mention one more thing that uh, in in my uh, in my sort of Cote abroad thing. So we, I, I think I mentioned we got a car recently. Oh, okay. And uh, now something that in America 
you sort of take for granted. So I'm going to point it out. When you have a car, you have to park it somewhere. This is a key requirement for a car. Now, in the States, it's sort of like doesn't you don't even think of that, right? It's, it's easily available. It's like clean water. Uh, uh, you know, at least when it's not frozen over in, in Texas. So, <laughs> but here, as Kim said, Amsterdam hates cars. So Amsterdam, not very into cars, which is understandable. And uh, it costs 32 euros a day to park your car on the street, but you can get a residential permit, which astoundingly, if you live here in, for your little zone only costs like 140 or 200 euros a year, Right. So you basically have like a thousand euros for uh, retail price street parking a month. So 12,000 euros a year for street retail street parking versus like 200 or so. And, uh, but like, so of course we applied for the residential one. Now applied is that key word. When I, when I read that word applied, I was like, I, I don't like how the feels that I'm getting here. <laughs> right. And so we finally got a letter back. And, and it, there's like a four month waiting list, Ooh. which, which is, is astounding because I have managed to find a parking space every day to pay my 32 euros. Mm. So there's sort of like, I get that, you know, I read that book Slack from Tom DeMarco, whoever back in the late nineties, early two thousands, you need Slack in the system, you know, yeah. Slack capacity, yeah. but I feel like, well, yeah, but I live here. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right like like i would understand if there was no capacity right that would make sense and it was just like there's literally nowhere for you to park but then that would mean that i had been struggling every day to find parking right and so it is and okay so no problem so i found a commercial garage that's like basically i don't know 240 euros a month and then the kicker is that uh i only need we only need parking for like two months because we're moving to uh i still can't pronounce it Twefendrecht, like basically a, a, a an enclave which is to say surrounded by amsterdam a little bedroom community and we have been told that parking there costs 40 euros a year so you know not a big deal but it is like i was reflecting on that after i got really angry about it for a while and was like you know i'm, I'm moving back to america going back to texas can't can't stand this <laughs> that was it this is probably it. <laughs> this, is the, this is the last straw <laughs> uh but you know i was i was uh i was thinking like you know this is a good example i i've been building up in my head these examples of like be careful what you know liberal left-wing thinking americans ask for because like i kind of experience all of it right like we've got we've got high density living that's really nice you got mixed residential living totally cool right we ride bikes around everywhere and uh we also pay like you know super high taxes can't get parking on the street have to pay extra for that and uh you know so forth and so on like there are there are uh, sort of costs to this stuff and so you know it's good to uh it's good to reflect on like do we really want expensive parking or should i just be able to park in those like three to four spots that are always outside of my street i think that would be nice. This episode is brought to you by CBT Nuggets. Are you looking to build your IT skills? Do you want to learn more about IT security, cloud computing, or networking? Then it's time to visit CBT Nuggets. They offer over 350 courses and over 2,000 virtual labs. They have courses available on everything, including AWS, Linux, VMware, and even Salesforce. Best of all, it's available online so you can learn what you want, when you want. 
CBT Nuggets adds over 40 hours of new training each week, so there's always something new to learn. They also offer accountability coaching, allowing you to speak with a real person who can help you create a personalized learning plan, set goals, and check in to make sure you stay on track. To get started, visit cbtnuggets.com sdt. That's cbtnuggets.com slash sdt. There you can sign up for the seven-day free trial, which gets you full access to all their courses. You know, I look through there, and I'm always wanting to learn Python more. And there's a lot of courses there where you can kind of ramp up into it and uh, even do some advanced networking things with Python. Other topics like that, I may go check that out when I'm done recording this. Anyhow, you can start learning today by going to cbtnuggets.com sdt. And of course, we thank them for sponsoring our show. Well, I think one of our favorite topics has merged with one of the more popular phrases uh, in in the world this week, and that is that is open source business and snowflake. <laughs> I, I can't I can't say that I even really understand what a snowflake is. I understand it's a data warehouse and it has multi cloud support. Sounds like sounds like a re- a regular uh, Tanzu for your uh, your data warehousing uh, situation going on there, which is fun. And um, I think it was this week. Like, like they, they had a, uh, let me fix that there. They, they had a, they had a post on, uh, their sort of, uh, manifesto on open and open source and things like that. And I hadn't encountered it until I was reading through, uh, our, our news for this week, which, you know, if you want to read the stuff that we collect each week, you can go join our Slack. If you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash slack you can join it and all throughout the week we and the little are, are not little listeners the the group of listeners and community that we have adds news in there so i was looking through stuff and for some reason and i think this is this is part of what's interesting is is uh i think it was one of the co-founders the technical co-founder of snowflake who has over 80 patents uh, i read in his biography <laughs> he uh which is not always, it looked like you knew always a good sign yes go on yeah tell me yeah, more look like he looked like he knew what he was doing, which is, you know, impressive. Uh, so uh, it was this long post on, uh, on uh, well, their view on open source and when they decide to have open formats, uh, close things and open source. And, uh, and you know, the advantages and, and disadvantages from a, it was, it was posed as from a user or a customer perspective, um, which is fine. I think, I think the one disadvantage he didn't mention was that Amazon will destroy your business. Uh, <laughs> that's so that, important. Always important that, to, to That was out. not mentioned, but I think it's good to add there is that nowadays there was a slight allusion to it in that they, he, he said that they have a lot of, um, a lot of knowledge of how to run these things in a managed right. service. And I think so one thing we should, you should, we should clarify is that, the the part that we are the article we're referring to it wasn't a company post the, at least the way I wrote it was actually in posted in InfoWorld right because I think that's going to come to in a minute like like it was a yeah. place it looks like a placed article like you don't just crank up the company blog and throw this up like there was some thought behind not only we're we going to write this but we want it placed in a industry wide yeah. red system so go, and, but continue on I think I think they had a similar one on their their official blog but okay. But yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so it was like, you know, everything was well reasoned. Like, I mean, most of it, there, there were two main things. I, I'm not I'm not at all seeking to summarize the article, just the parts that stuck out to me and that were interesting because, you know, it is our podcast. So 
we're, we're not like the third estate or some bullshit. <laughs> so like, you know, there was a discussion of essentially it's harder if, if you open source, if you're completely open, if you're successful, it's hard to change things because you have so many people depending on them. It's essentially the, uh, I, I forget, I think I went in our, our book of, uh, of uh, what's the Amazon thing? beyond starting first, working backwards <laughs> <laughs> or something. Uh, you know, in the working backward thing, I forget if I mentioned this, but there was a great phrase that was like, you know, we're spending too much time collaborating and not enough time building. Right. And I think, I think that, is, that is a pretty good, concise insight of one of the problems of working in, of consensus and working with other people in life and in technology. So I think that's a good thing to think about and there it was their main point in that uh if we open this up then it's harder for us to make changes because people are depending on it or whatever right so instead you want to focus on apis uh that are open which i mean that's fine that's a good and i and i my sense is i don't know snowflake that well but there was a lot of discussion of file formats mm-hmm. and compression but i think when we come back like i think let's start from the beginning it's like i i, I took this whole response as like somebody asked them the question like if we were in it like a room someone that said hey, why aren't you open source? That's important to me, right? And yes. that this entire article is written in, in response to that question. Absolutely. And I think what is, what's confusing about it is, you know, there is no contextual, like, uh, setup, right? It's just sort of like a, a long justification about why it's not open source. And I think that's the thing that I think a lot of people, not just us, right? I mean, you can see various... Twitter threads and, you know, let's we'll, we'll say the tech luminaries that all chiming in sort of like, like, why, why are you writing this long justification? Um, like there's nothing that's mandated about when you create software of any kind that always must be open source, that you must open source yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. And that to me was like the striking thing. And then we can go th- through some of the reasons they outlined, but um, so I don't know, there was a bunch of theories people were throwing out about why. So I guess the one that, I think most people settled on was this is a response to maybe like an investor question or a question mm-hmm. that they must feel like they're getting a lot. And when I say they, I mean the executives of this company, because I mean, going back to like who wrote it and of course, like you didn't necessarily write it, but like who got the byline where not only was it written as a blog, but it was sort of placed in other places. So there was some kind of media outreach, like, Hey, would you yeah. please pick this up? Because they wanted to speak to some audience. And I think, uh, most people tended to settle on, well, some type of investors, you know, uh, must be asking this question a lot. And um, if we go back in time, when we when we reviewed the Snowflake IPO, I think we recommended against it. Again, we're not an investment podcast. Then it would it did really, really well. But now it's actually come down. I guess we were sort of right. I guess if you just wait long enough, you can be right. Um, I guess it's now below the IPO price or trading around it. So, so clearly, I think the what I would say underlying this is like, it's not that the product is good or bad. It's the valuation. It's just, you know, it was enormous. And now maybe it's coming back down. And it seems like that this is one of the reasons why they're trying to defend themselves is to write that, right? But it comes across as, to me, it read across very defensive. And, was, and that was the part that I, yeah, I kind of yeah. left with. So what was your take? Yeah, no, you know, so there was, there was, a, there was a thread because Matt, Matt Assay was someone who pointed to like, why, what, you know, this is fine. Why is this here? essentially was his take. 
and uh, or not take his question. And yeah, I think as as you mentioned, as someone else mentioned, I mean, this when I and I also kind of had this thought when I was reading it, like, oh, this is the kind of thing that like the salespeople keep asking you about this because people keep asking them, like the prospects ask them about openness and proprietary and it's a, it's a sales barrier. And so eventually you, you know, you write a response for it on your, your intra web on your intranet, you have your, uh, what, what do they, what do they call these things? Is it, it's not a battle card, is it? It's sort of like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the common hurdles and, and yeah, objections. You, is yeah, it objections? Common objections? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sales so, guide, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it seems like, I mean, I would wager it just comes out of like that kind of thing, right? So you think and it's just it's also- to generalize? Because I don't know, just the way the person who wrote this, because if this was, a, let's say, a director of product marketing, director of product management, something you throw out, like that level, I would I would, I could kind of put it in like, oh, this is just us trying to appease the salespeople. And, but uh, the fact that it came from, you know, one of the highest ranking officials or executives rather at Snowflake makes me feel like, oh, clearly... Like clearly the board of directors, somebody in like either the board or like some investor called them up and it was giving them a hard time about, hey, you know, Google BigQuery is kicking ass and your valuation is way down. And I don't I don't get it. Like what's I don't know if it's Google. I mean, pick any of them. Right. Like like some I feel like that 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 happened in the board meeting was like, what is going on? What is your plan? And then out of the the meeting came like, all right, we're going to we're going to explain why open source for this product is not necessary. And I think it to me, and it has zero effect on their business, of course, right? I was like, I don't, after reading this, yeah, I am, huh? I am not, I am neither more likely or less likely to get involved in Snowflake. It seems just irrelevant to like what, what most people are thinking about. It's like, does this solve my problem or not? I don't really care about your yeah. long philosophical approach or not philosophical approach to the open source. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I mean, that's why, why it is a weird. I mean, it's a piece of like thought leadership, essentially, right? Like, like when I, when I look at it, sort of like we have this position that's that helps us commercially, uh, and so like we need to get that out there, and it's also something to refer people to or, or whatever. And it, and it, I mean, it does seem like, I mean, I don't know. It seems like if you are an investor asking a company, a tech company nowadays, why they don't do more open source, like you would be not a good investor. Like, <laughs> the, like there should hopefully. I don't know if if uh, there should be some memos that investors get that's like open source companies have a high chance of getting clobbered, right? Like it's it's difficult. It's it's not that it's impossible, but it's very difficult nowadays if you're in the infrastructure, the enterprise infrastructure business. Like not only is it very difficult, but it's sort of like another reason why like this this uh this piece is a little clunky is like I don't know if anyone said it was bad. <laughs> right. Well, like, I think that's the whole thing. Like, it's like you wouldn't like want to. I mean, just kind of. You know, that's why this is such. I don't know. It's just such a weird thing. It's like, you know, you never want to respond. Let someone else set the agenda and then respond to it, right? Like, if especially at this level, right, at, at this kind of company, is that you would always be asserting your own point of view, right? Yeah. And, and always coming from some position of strength and then repositioning the other thing. It's like we need to to solve these problems the best way that we can do it is is to deliver software this way talk about why you do it this way and why it's good and like leave it at that right versus like let me uh take your objections one by one right because you're just anytime you know you're in any type of competitive situation you know you're losing when you're just responding to someone like when they send you the rfp and they're like why aren't you like uh like as good as this and there's like 10 questions and you see the questions are all basically 
you know, things that your competitor has kind of maybe put in there, you're like, you've lost, right? The game is over. Like the, the yeah, game yeah. was won with the person that wrote the question. So, so the fact that they're doing this, I, I find it, this is one of the weirdest corporate, I don't even, I don't want to call it like a misstep, maybe just strangest corporate messaging things I've ever seen or flip it around and say like, wow, do we ever think we're at a point where like every, it's like, I mean, it really is like the reverse of like, you have to explain why you're not open source. Cause it used to be always the opposite, right? We used to be like, Oh, I don't understand. Like you're yeah, an open yeah. source company. Why would I buy this? Like, how are you secure? Isn't everyone going to steal your code? Now, now it's on the other side. You have every company would have to explain why it isn't open. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Well, that that's, that's what I was thinking to, to, to discuss next is like, well, what if, what if this, I don't, this is the wrong word, but what if this, the, the argument here, the thinking here, is is the new way to think about open source and and to grossly uh, simplify it it's basically let me put it another way the places that they use they talk about using open source as being good are basically like what we would call the sdks like the code yeah. that developers would use that they would you know the libraries and code they would use to like interface with snowflake with the blizzard or whatever they cleverly call their snowflake stuff right and like that makes sense right and all the public cloud i don't know if all the public cloud providers and other people have those components open source but like if developers are using some like api as some chunk of code to talk to your proprietary thing like that seems like it's fine to be open source like i don't really i couldn't really tell you why except that like developers like that like i get the sense that like if your code, like, so let's take a scenario. Let's say you wanted to interface with some cloud database and you needed like the drivers uh, in whatever language you're using to do that. Like, I don't know if a developer would, if it just, they download it really quickly and it just works. I'm not sure they would care if it was open source or not, but whatever, <laughs> right? Like it might just be better to have things be open source so that, uh, I don't know, because people like them, but you know, and then the position is further that like, and this is where things like uh, get into some shades of taboo is like the other position might be like, well, if, if the code that we're doing is kind of like part of the core system of the product or service that you're buying, and we don't really expect anyone to ever work on it outside of our organization, uh, and it's also part of what we sell, then why would we open source it? And the only counter argument to that is usually like, I guess there's sort of two, there's sort of three. There's one that's sort of like, well, the uh, we'll get a lot more collaboration. And, you know, if you get it, if you get enough, you know, merchants in a bazaar, you've got something more pretty than a cathedral or whatever. Right. So we'll get all this input from other people. Uh, which is good. Now there's a subset there that if you want to have a, a shared stack of code, like an ecosystem in a, an industry or some sort of group, then you can open source it. And Kubernetes is kind of sort of that, but not exactly. It's more turned <laughs> into that, but you know, you could agree amongst all of the insurance companies. This is a very absurd example, but like, Hey, we have applications that have multiple pages in them. So why don't we just all work on an open source pagination system? Like there's sure. no reason for yeah. us to do that. Right. There's so we some, can do yeah, that. there's some value in the overall thing. Well, right, I just right. want to and, read here. Maybe we'll, we can kind yeah. of wrap on this. Like, I'll read the end of this because I think it's just some good corporate jargon here. It's like uh, the final paragraph is, uh, quote, we remain committed to open sourcing components that get deployed in customer premises 
or security perimeters, and to import and export open formats. We remain committed to standards-based API and programming models. And above all, we remain committed to continuing to innovate and raising the bar on what's possible in our industry, end quote. So I would say that is a paragraph that could be written by every software company in the world. Welcome to Motherhood and Apple Pie. I have no idea why you took the time to write this entire thing to state like the most obvious things about developing any kind of enterprise software. So yeah, yeah. I feel yeah, better now. I, I feel better that we've, we've, I, I, hope, I guess it's almost like watching someone else's therapy. I hope it has left you in a better place and we'll see you next Monday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, my sense is that like, there must be something going on in this market that I don't know about or understand. Right. Again, with the file formats. And so anyways, like the second thing, essentially, like you could say for security, right? So if we have our code open, then uh, security will be better because we have more eyes until those like Michigan students fuck everything up. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> so it's just, you know, I, I, I don't know. And who is it? Someone, I guess it was even in the article, there is a good point of like, yeah, your code can be secure, but then there's like all the other stuff around it, which also has to be secure, right? Well, so, I mean, check this sense out. This is another favorite one right here. It's like, quote, at Snowfix, we believe in the value of open standards and open source, but also in the value of data governance and security. We believe in the value of ease of use, the power of community, and the value of abstractions that enable transparent optimization and improvements over time, end quote. And it's like, there's so many false choices there. It's like, because they're kind of trying to say like, we believe in open source, but we also believe in data governance and security. You know, everybody that works in open source, or you would hope, right? You know, working open source is not going to make you more or less interested in data governance or security, right? That's going to be an important thing. So like, yeah, I don't know, yeah, is yeah. it a false choice here? Is it just a bad argument? I mean, the sentence structure is just complicated and there's a lot of like, I don't, you know, when you really try to start parsing, it's like, what are you even trying to say? You're trying to say open source doesn't value that. Well, good luck with that. You're going to get a lot of people coming at you. Are you saying that all of these things together? And again, like, it's just so generic. Like, who isn't going to say this? Like, who doesn't believe in like ease of use and data governance and security and being like, I don't, nothing is being said here. It's just weird. You know, you're the president of the product division. Like, what are you writing? Like who, I mean, who wrote this? Like what's going on? Who's in charge is my question. This this is one of, one of the, the better, uh, uh, talk radio type of type of uh, commentary that, that we've had on something, I think. But so so then and, and I think this is where things get, get more interesting. So then there's like this idea of of lock in and openness, which I think like like, you know, that's there's a lot. Again, there's a lot about file formats, right, <laughs> which a lot about data formats and things like that. And so, like, if we were doing some criminology or, or whatever, like maybe that's the 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 kind of origination of this is. Maybe there's a lot of discussions about like, give us, tell us what the format this data is in so we can access it directly instead of, and, you know, I don't know if this is the case with Snowflake, but, you know, in, in the world of data, it's always like, you know, instead of uh, what's the word that, that on-premise vendors like to use, you know, instead of, uh, they don't say jailing or in a hotel, but like, you know, instead of like charging for access to my own data, like there's, so there's, there's like that idea that like, because I don't understand the format. Uh, you essentially own my data and I have to pay you. And if I don't pay you, I'm going to lose the data. And there's probably, you know, this type of thinking reminded me of like, you know, uh, you own your own data and being able to download your data. Like I would like to download all my photos from Flickr and I've tried many times and one, you need a really fast internet connection 
And then the other thing is they, they take all of your photos and they have the current date. And then conveniently, if you want, there's a JSON file that has all the metadata. So like, I need to like write a script to open up those JSON files and go add, you know, go, go open up the, what is it? ID, whatever the, the EXIF files on are, are on an image and add that in there and also change the creation file date. And it's like, like, did the programmers just have like a three day weekend they wanted to like leave for? Like, why, why not didn't they the extra do while, this? Right. Right. Like, and so, so it, it effectively means that like, while I can kind of download, and this is also the ridiculous thing, while I can download like 80 zip files of all my photos, like they're kind of dead to me because if I add all those photos into like Apple photos or Google photos, they're like, uh, if I did it today on March 27th, 2021, this day, I would have been on record for taking like 50,000 photos, right? <laughs> and it's just like, so, I mean, that's a ridiculous example, but these are the kind of thoughts that I would imagine someone has when they're thinking about their data warehouse is like, yeah, but if I need to get my stuff, like, are you just going to export a giant mm-hmm. CSV file to me? Right. All like right, even this next paragraph quote, at first glance, the ability to directly access files in standard well-known format is appealing, but it becomes troublesome when the format needs to evolve. Consider an enhancement enables better compression or better processing. How do we coordinate across all possible users and applications to understand the new format? Well, one, I mean, there are like a million examples of how to do this. Like you could just version the yeah, format, yeah. like yeah. just version how you stored the data Two, fine. Just provide me an API and give me the API and provide the data in a format that meets all the customer needs. Right. So if that needs to be a proprietary format, then give it to them. If not, you know, to hear what you're saying, give it out in a, a nice, easy to use, well-documented format and say it's okay. And tell people it's like, it's going to be a little slower. Oh, fair enough. Right. Like just outline what you're going to do. Tell us what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, and how you're going to this problem but like this is all bs like you could solve this problem i mean this person who wrote this or the byline is super smart way smarter than me on all of this they know how to do this they they like if you gave them this problem they would come back with a solution quickly right and be like oh we just we're just going to specify the version of how it's stored and that you just have to be aware of that when you pull it it's like it would take you know i don't know probably a group a very short amount of time to figure it out so so I don't know. The whole or article to me is, I mean, we have the boilerplate at the end that I already read. We have this long meandering file format stuff in the middle where it's just like, like, who's reading this? Like, I mean, like, who wants to hear the, the boilerplate stuff at the end and also this deep file format uh, discussion in the middle, which is sort of breaks down to like a little bit of object oriented programming and API and versioning. Mm, like, yeah. like, I don't know. Like, who's who cares? Who cares about any of this? So so this entire article, I just think is just. I'm in a complete misstep by Snowflake. I have no idea why they did it. I have no idea how it helps the company. And I don't like I'm not even against Snowflake. I from what I hear, people do really like it. When I talk to the the data analyst people, they're like, they love it. So I would just tell them like just just go back to doing what you're doing and keep selling your product and the valuation will take care of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Strong opinion, Brandon. I like it. Strident. Now, so the final thing I wanted to say is uh you know, th- it, that would have been back when we did the exegesis thing. This would be a good artifact to, to go over. And because it, it, it can, I think, as, as, uh, as, as you've been going over, it, it can be very uh, educational for not only like how you uh, structure a, a thought leadership piece, but how you kind of select what you're going to talk about and kind of like the decision process behind it. Now, so the final thing, right, like that, that it, uh, it kind of evokes when I'm reading it is like, you know, I've never been clear in the open source world. <clears throat> why 
I mean, other than just like, you know, when bad things happen, it sucks. Right. But like, like why the open source world is, is so opposed to protecting commercial interests with open source. Right. So it's almost like, and you know, this is what we've seen over the past couple of years with the various companies that like Amazon uh, tries to, or does replicate and threatens is like, I mean, like, maybe it's because I'm older, but I feel like if you had an open, if you were like, yeah, I'm open source, except like, not for that guy. Right. Like, <laughs> and it would just be like, it'd be like, yeah, I mean, it's open source unless you want to like run it as a business in, in, in which case, like, why would I want you to do that? Right. Like the point, the point of open source is not for you to like uh, freeload off of the work that I and the community does, right? But um, so yeah, don't do that, right? And like, now, there are many other positions that you can have. But it is like, I mean, I, I, I always wonder what the origin of that almost to say anti commercial is is incorrect, but just sort of like that cold attitude towards making money off the code is and, and it, it's, it's sort of like, I don't, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the problem that a lot of the, the sort of open source companies have had when they put up their Amazon defense is they have, they've kind of changed midstream what the licensing terms were. Whereas if you started off with this position, then no one would seem to be upset. But I mean, that we need to have like a better understanding in the open source world of like, we want all of the sort of engineering benefits that we get and the warm feelies. But also, like, we also need to acknowledge that, like, freeloaders are not cool. Like, that's that's not good. And um, I don't know. It's It seems weird. Like, you know, again, in this case, it's just sort of like, yeah, I don't really, like, dis disagree with your wanting to do this. But you could also just say, like, we wrote the code and we want to make the money off of it. And our product works well. This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. Are you managing a gazillion SSH database passwords and Kubernetes certs? How do you manage an audit at that scale? Meet StrongDM, the only way to simplify infrastructure access and audit controls across any environment, no matter how diverse. StrongDM extends any SSO to centrally manage access to databases, servers, and Kubernetes clusters, so onboarding and offboarding can be done in a single click. Escalate privileges with just-in-time access and automatically log every query and command. Trusted by companies like Hearst, Peloton, and SoFi, StrongDM is the only way to manage access and audit controls at scale without disrupting your workflows. Start your 14-day free trial at strongdm.com slash SDT. There's no credit card required. That's strongdm.com slash SDT. And of course, we thank StrongDM for sponsoring our show. Well, the, uh, the Datadog people who have always been nice sponsors of us over the years, I, I don't know what that means. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, they put out their state of serverless uh, report uh, this year, and I didn't go over the, uh, the methodology, but I assume they kind of look over data that they have and probably do some surveying and stuff like that. But I think it's, as far, I think it's just over like, uh, like Amazon usage, right? Or does it look over all no, serverless? No, it's, got like, it's got a little bit of everything. It's, it talks about Google functions and Azure functions coming on. So they've, they've, uh, it, they've taken it, a look at all of it. So it seems like a lot of people use Lambda. Lambda. 
I'm, I'm, I've turned into a little bit of Brandon there. I don't quite know how to pronounce things, but you know, I was, I was looking through it quickly. There's a great infographic as web page uh, with some animated ants crawling around. It's very delightful. And uh, you know, my chief question in looking through it, well, I couldn't find a, a PDF to download. Maybe there is more detail, but I wanted to find out like what exactly are the workloads that people are using? What, what do people use it for? And I couldn't quite get down to that. And so, you know, maybe the answers are there are out there, as they used to say on that TV show, uh, I think. But I did notice that a huge amount of the language being used in, in, I think it was Lambda, so let's just say serverless in general, is Python. So like almost, I think it's 58%, which in other words, almost 60% of all of the, the, the little serverless things deployed are in Python. And then Node is like uh, 30% after that. And then the next, the third one is like Java at five to 6%. So uh, maybe in different types, non-Lambda ones, uh, I'll come up with 50 different ways to pronounce that. But, uh, you know, maybe there's different languages, but I think let's just run with this. It seems like it's basically going to be Python or Node that you're putting in there. And if I remember the Node programming model, it's very good for serverless because it is a lot of like little calls out to things. And maybe it's also good because you, uh, you can write Node in the, the client and the uh, the server side, if I remember, showing my ignorance here, but like that means that you could have one language for a web app or you know mobile apps that support that. But then the other thing is like, I mean, I feel like Python is used for a lot of data analysis stuff, and so I mean, do people actually program lots of applications in Python? Like, I mean, Python always ranks really up high, but it always it's always used for lots of data stuff. So I wonder if like a lot of what people are doing with serverless is like little data sorts of things, you know, whether it's manipulating data around with Python or doing more analysis. I mean, I have no idea, but it'd be nice to know what people actually what's running in that, which is something that like, you probably you'd have to make a lot of assumptions, kind of like looking through usage data to see what applications people are running. It's kind of hard to tell what the application actually does. Like, It'd be hard to identify like, oh, this is an insurance application. Right. Unless well, I don't know. Do you unless think, you went it... industry by industry and found yeah. common industry frameworks that people were using. But like, okay, maybe we start this way because Python is, I mean, is dominant when you look at this graph. It's like Python and Node are, you know, clearly one and two, and then there's a significant fall off. So, but if I said to you, all right, which uh, language is most likely to use kind of like, I, w- I don't want to write a bash script. Right. I don't want to, I want to do like just a yeah. little bit more. Right. I just want to do something. Yeah, yeah. I want to use a pri- programming language, uh, but it's kind of for a real small thing. Maybe it's just like something I'm like kind of almost like replacing some kind of command line utility. It feels like in that case, Python would typically be used first. Right. That's a very That's popular. Yeah, so yeah, I wonder yeah. if it's like, if, if it's something along those lines, like people, the first obvious place is to take relatively small functions that maybe, we're just kind of running on a server with like a cron yeah. job, you know, something like that and say, Hey, why don't we take these and make them uh, a lambda yeah. and we put that up. So maybe that explains why Python itself would be the leader now. And so maybe that's more a backward looking trend. Whereas now, of course, with all the latest announcements, you can you know, put your entire, if you will, uh, application logic in a container and you'll run that in Lambda. So maybe that opens it up for, some of these other programming languages, either that or what you said before is um, it does seem like Python and, you know, data analysis. Right. And I think maybe those two things go hand in hand. It's like, it is the kind of thing that, okay, if you were doing 
some data analysis and you had written some stuff, it's already in Python, it's really easy to move it over. But going forward, we wouldn't necessarily expect Python to be the dominant language or we're just missing it. Or like, no, Python's used a lot more than we think for large scale applications. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point that it, it would be good for a little thing. Yeah. And then, I, you know, I was also thinking like, it's hard. There's one chart that shows like, like languages by company size. And I don't know what, how they size things, but it's probably down here in the definition, which would be thrilling content to go over. But, you know, in large organizations, Python is used by 80% of the functions in those large, those enterprise organizations, which is a lot more. The other ones are at like 65%. Or, or so smaller ones use node more <laughs> but you know it, it also like was making me think like well i wonder if this is the organization thing kind of gets to it but another thing to to think about is like i wonder who like the top five users of of lambda of fun- serverless stuff is like i wonder if it's like i don't know my chart well, it has to be one aws things. right wouldn't it be yeah, like, yeah, yeah 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 of course right uh-huh. yeah but that but but datadog probably doesn't i wonder if they analyze them right like if they could figure that out whereas like i wonder if if there are like five organizations globally who do like the bulk of serverless usage or you know if there's like 500 out mm-hmm. of 50,000 or if it's kind of like even uh, amongst there right and how how that would like skew the workloads but i don't know i mean my summary is like i'm always curious like what people are actually using uh serverless stuff for and and then my follow up question is as as people can tell, Matt Ray's not here, so maybe I'm doing pointing. It's very exciting. Maybe he he could add an addition to yourself to answer this. I just wanted to check in to see if if I'm still supposed to uh, distinguish between serverless and function as a service. I think I think there was there's been some discussion over the years about those things being maybe different or the same, and it's good to, to check in. Uh, do you, have, have you kept up with this, Brandon? Yeah, you know? I mean, I, I I guess I try to do it. I, at this point, have, uh, I think I've said this on the show before, but I've firmly come down to serverless is a clear statement by the industry of the benefit people want, right? And it can mean lots of things. Like, I do not want to mess around with infrastructure as a service. I want all of this taken care of me. And that sort of wraps around into a larger topic. It's sort of like the return of paths in some way that we've talked about before. But then how do you deliver serverless? I think that is still, you know, ultimately being figured out. I think the the most common industry, you know, statement, if you will, like if we think about feature benefit, okay, well, the feature that delivers serverless that's most, um, if you will, tied to it is usually some type of functions as a service. But then when you get inside of that, you get into like, there's lots of versions of it. There's Lambda oh, and there's boy. Azure functions and, you know, all the different ways that can it can be done. Um, and I think that's where the industry is today. Like no one is settled in on exactly how to do it. And as our friend, uh, Corey Quinn has did a great blog post. I put a link in here. He said, there are 17 different ways to deploy, I think, uh, you know, essentially containers in AWS today. And some of them, um, you know, touch on serverless and some of them don't. And it's just like, and I don't think that's, I, don't, I think that's just sort of a great representation of like where things are at. Like, it isn't, no one's figured it out yet. Like, how do I deploy the containers? How do I do these functions as a service? Your question earlier was like, well, a Python function seems like that makes perfect sense for what it is today, but I got all this Java code, so what should I do with it? And so now you're seeing a whole bunch of, of people kind of announce solutions on that. And I, this will go on for probably the next two years, right? Uh, as mm. people kind of find the best format and best way to do this. You know what, you know what they say, you, you wanna make sure you don't spend too much time on building and not not enough time on uh consolidating like that's you you don't want to 
have kudzu code and services. Well, do we have any bureaucracy to go over this week, Brandon? Oh, a little bit here. So um, first and foremost, I wanted to congratulate everyone that's worked uh, in the Software Defined Talk. Did you know it was the thread anniversary, the the Software Defined Talk uh, mega thread? No. It, it turned one no. year old. So uh, it was, you know, it was a great day. So I don't know. It's I think it's pushing like 4,000 plus messages. We did get uh, some back channel. It's like, how long can a thread in Slack be? People are saying uh, they think it's around uh, twenty thousand messages. But the person that proved that they just did a load test. We're you know we're doing it the right way. We're slowly mm-hmm. using the product as it should be, and we'll eventually, yeah, it's a natural test. It's a real world case. So uh, I think we got at least fifteen thousand messages to go before something happens. Before that thread has to become its own Discord or something crazy like that. So congratulate sure. everyone. If you want to join the thread, uh, go uh, to softwaredefinedtalk.com and just join the uh, the. Slide channel also uh, i did uh send some stickers to mark he's very close to me just up here in georgetown texas and uh so i've sent a bunch of stickers to him he actually asked you kote i don't know we'll, we'll do it live here on, on air like did you recommend uh what is it leprechauns of coding people were asking like where can they find that book and i don't know oh i, I think yeah we... yeah i did it's it's uh well i mean i bought it a long time ago from lean pub that's, okay, that's there you where, go, Lean uh, Pub. So we're going to put a link, Mark, for you and everybody that wants to see Leprechaun's here, I guess, did you fact, give it a strong recommendation? You must have, since he wrote in about it. I have it I have it here in my search history. Yeah, it's great. It's, All uh, right, it's, uh, so we'll put a link into the show notes so everyone can buy it. I haven't read the book. I have no idea. I trust If Coach you go, Jack. now Leprechaun's is a hard word to spell, but if you go to leanpub.com slash leprechauns, uh, you'll go to it. And we'll, we'll put that in here uh, as well. Let me... Put, I'll put that in the All right, fantastic. And then uh, if you want a sticker, of course, all you have to do is send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And then Kote, you know, we had a job. I don't know, maybe you know the person that posted this because it sounds like it's in your group. <laughs> so tell us, like, where, where do you want them to work? Yeah, well, we have an opening on uh, on my team. Not that I manage, but that I am on. And uh, it's just to do uh, an advocate role around DevOps and Kubernetes and things like that. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, that you should uh, you can contact me and I'll send you to uh, you know whatever. We have double referral bonuses now, so if you do get accepted for this job, you should put me down as someone who referred to you, and I will uh, I'll thank you, uh, I think. And uh, but yeah, it's if you ever want to do advocate stuff and you know about uh, operational things, you should uh, you should talk to us and come check it out. It'll be fun. It's it's a good role to be in. Uh, also, there's some conferences. Uh, you know, th- we got the spring one one coming up, and also uh, there's that conference, July 26th and 29th in Wisconsin. It looks like there's it's a hybrid conference, in person and online. They're back. This nice. is the uh, Calamari at the Cal- Kalahari. I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember what we said last year. But uh, oh yeah, Brett, the hotel. Yeah, yeah. So they have a call for uh, papers. They they have. I think it's like they they call the uh, presenters like. Uh, what is it when you're at a, a, a camp counselor? So there you go. So they're going to do it. That's I think right. I just remember this conference last year because it was like one of the last ones we removed when all the conferences sort of ended. Yeah. So it's yes. back. I'm glad to see. So, and of course, I don't know anything about Wisconsin. I just think the weather will be nice in August. Maybe I should just go for that reason, you know, yeah, to go and That would be so, fun. So check out that conference. And there's the Rabbit MQ Summit, July 13th and 14th. Uh, and I mentioned the spring one in September. Also, I think this is next week. If you want to know, uh, if you're interested in doing application modernization, portfolio analysis for that, 
you know, it's a webinar that we in Tanzuland are doing, but you can get a, I've, I've looked over the slides, you'll get a pretty good sense of the methodology that uh, we help people with and kind of get an idea of how you can start tackling big modernization stuff. You should go check that webinar out. And all these things, it's, it's uh, for Europe. So it's like 2 p.m. Central Europe time, which, you know, could work for you in the States. There's a recorded version for U.S. people if you want to see that. But uh, you can get links to those conferences and things like that if you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 302, the episode number here. So with that, Brandon, what do you have to recommend this week? My recommendation is uh, Netflix. I watched this uh, documentary, Last Breath. I actually think it's better if you kind of go in not, not knowing much about it. I, I really enjoyed it. So uh, I'll just say, you know, I'll give you the most general uh, description of where it's like, there's some people they got to see things happen. It's uh, very entertaining. And uh, the way I rate movies now is how likely or, or how little do I use my phone during actually watching this? And this is one of those that like I got, you know, uh, captivated by put down the phone. I really paid attention. So that's why I'm recommending it's good. So check out Last Breath on Netflix. Oh, I'll have to do that. Well, I have a TV recommendation, too. I've uh, uh, I started watching the the third season of American Gods, which, you know, I don't know back in the US how you get to it, but it's just an Amazon here. So it's easy to look at. And uh, I remember watching the second season and being kind of bored with it. It's a little too much. You know you know how TV shows, multi-season ones, they kind of run down after a while. But this one's, uh, this season's pretty good. I, I think it's nice. And you know, we got the fast internet connection and it's in whatever the hell UHD is. So it's a really nice, <laughs> crisp, good picture. You don't quite see the stubble on, on everyone's face, but... Uh, it's nice to watch. And then, uh, you know, also, uh, we, we were discussing this before we were recording. Uh, we're always trying to figure out Twitch. And there's, there's one that I was looking at recently. Uh, Layla code SI codes it. That's what it is. I was wondering what that is. Layla codes it. <laughs> I thought it was some weird SIT was like some weird abbreviation. Look at that. Who, th- who would have thought? Fantastic. Wow. But anyways, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, she, she's like a .NET developer and she has like four hour Twitch streams, which she's, uh, which are interesting looking. So, uh, that's, that's what we got this week with that, you know, as I mentioned several times, if you want to get the show notes for this, you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com and, uh, look them up. You can join our Slack channel, all sorts of things like that. And Hey, you should visit our sponsors and check them out, whether it's CBT nuggets or strong DM easy enough to uh, check them out. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, do you like that genre of like, of like, like shadow run minus the cyberpunk part? <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean? No, I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I can't say, I can't answer that question. I think we figured it out. <laughs>